pick up our exposition where we left off last week. We're just making our trek through the book of Philippians. Last week we finished up with verses 9 through 11, and we'll take as our task this morning verses 12 and 13. Um, if you're willing and able, we'll stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. And then we'll go to the Lord in prayer once again, and I ask that you would pray with me that the Lord would bless as we worship Him through His Word. I want to pick up the reading uh, once again in verse number 5, just for context's sake. The Apostle Paul instructs, really lays before the church at Philippi and us, uh, the supreme example of humility, and that's in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And he begins that in verse number 5 with this instruction. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Let's pray. Father, we come to you once again. Simply because we need you. Father, you've extended in us to us through your Son. Just the most immeasurable grace. Father, we need more of that now. As we approach your word, Father, we approach spiritual things, and we know that those things are spiritually discerned. So we pray, Father, that you would fill us with your spirit. And Father, we know that you speak through your word by the power of your spirit. And we, Father, confess that that is exactly what we need this morning. We need the truth revealed to us. Father, we need you to lay open eternal treasures. Father, we need you to even place in us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness and for the word of God. And Father, you know each and every heart that's here. You know, Father, the secret places that are hidden that even ourselves um, could not direct anyone to. Father, you know those places that we don't even know in the deepest recesses of our souls. But we also, Father, take great comfort in knowing that your Son and, and by the power of your Spirit can invade those fathers and bring darkness to light. Father, our blind spots are not your blind spots. And you know, Father, every fabric, um, every atom that makes up our body, but even more than that, Father, that eternal portion of us. Um, Father, you know every inch of our souls. So, Father, we pray that you would take the truth to those places this morning. 
And that if it's a hunger that we need, that you would give it, Father. If it's revelation that we need, Father, we pray that you would enlighten us and illuminate our hearts this morning. Father, if it's rebuke or correction that we need, Father, would you do that for us this morning? Father, if it's instruction in an area that we've not yet been instructed, Father, would you show us the path? And Father, would you strengthen by the power of your Spirit us to enable us to obey? Father, would you give us joy in our hearts this morning? Would you comfort our souls, Father? And if somebody be here today without Christ, would you bring dead men and dead women to life, Father, and help us to usher in and disciple those little ones for the glory of God. Father, we need you this morning. We hold our hands up with the utmost praise at the work of the Son. We realize his work is not done, Father. Um, So keep working in us this morning as we seek to work out, Father, even our own salvation. We know that you go with us to work in the will of your good pleasure. So please yourself this morning, Father, even at the displeasure of our own souls and the nature of our flesh. Conform us to Christ. Conform our will to your will this morning that we might delight in God and that be evidenced by delighting in his word this morning. May we know that the Spirit was among us, Father, because of the delight that we have in you. Father, magnify Christ through the preaching. Help us to be faithful, not only in the giving, but in the receiving of the word, even to the littlest of these. Father, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you for standing. As I said, we pick up in verses 12 and 13. Um, as we finished up that great portion of Scripture last week in verses 5 through 11, but particularly 9 through 11. And we're just going to hit the ground running this morning as we pick up in further instruction after the illustration of that supreme example that I trust that most, if not all of you, are familiar with. So when we approach... uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, we really come upon what is a phenomenal portion of Scripture. You might think of coming out of uh, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, that we've come off of the mountaintop, and in some way, maybe we have, but Paul doesn't quite leave the mountain yet. He lingers there in the glory of it all, and takes time to apply it to our lives. And that is what we find in this portion of the text, Paul's application, in some sense, of Christ's incarnation. God doesn't teach us theology simply for theology's sake. And actually some of the greatest illustrations and exhortations or articulations of the greatest Christology that you'll find in all the Scripture actually have the primary purpose of instructing us in godliness. And that's exactly what you see here. Um, Paul is not writing a systematic theology. Paul sees a behavioral conduct need within the body of Christ. So what does he do do to meet that need? He magnifies Christ before them to instruct them in how to um, be unified. And that's what we see here in this word, therefore. Uh, One commentator writes, quote, God's therefore, in verse 9, is matched by the Christians, therefore, in verse number 12. And he goes on to say, and that in a nutshell is what this passage is about. Just as God assessed and then reacted to the worth of His Son's life of obedience in the exaltation, 
So the Christian must now ponder the example of Christ and determine upon a worthy response. He goes on to say later, he, speaking of Paul, says in effect, quote, let me tell you how to react if the great goal of wholesome relationships and the likeness of Christ is to be reached. He goes on to say, thus we learn from the Bible not only what is true, but also how to respond to that truth. Not only what is the example of Jesus, but also along what lines to make it real. Let us therefore sense the proper seriousness of what lies before us in 2.12 through 18. Finally, he says, for Christ's likeness is the Christian's greatest concern. And here is the procedure for attaining it. And I think that's true. Um, Or maybe we could sum it up like this. What does the incarnation argue for in our lives? When you witness the supreme sacrifice, the absolute humility, the perfect obedience of the sinless Savior, the question is not only what does it say to you, but what does it call you to do? Are we now to bask unendingly in the glory of such majesty as the humiliation and exaltation of our Lord? No, we are, as we enter into the presence of God, yes, we worship in that place, but that too is soon to be followed by service. Another writer, James Boyce, writes, quote, the Bible never allows us to think that meditation has achieved its purpose for us unless it results in practical application. He goes on to say, truth leads to action. There is no value to a mountaintop experience, and what he's writing on is the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, he's arguing that oftentimes we are like James and John and Peter up on the mount who want to build tents and stay there with our Lord in glory. Um, but our Lord does not determine that to be so. What does He do? Um, he, he rips apart what their view of kingdom is. He tears down their tents and He says, let's go down the mountain. And that's what Boyce is referring to. He says, truth leads to action and there is no value to a mountaintop experience unless it helps us to live lives in the valleys. And that's the reality here. Paul utilizes that blessed reality and the work of Christ to provoke us to service. You don't have a high view of Christ. Um, if your view of Christ does not lead to self-sacrifice, service, and or humility. Thus he exhorts those at Philippi with what Martin Lloyd-Jones refers to as, quote, one of the most practical, perfect summaries of the Christian life to be found anywhere. One of the most pregnant statements that Paul has ever made, end quote. Another man has said, these verses are a watershed for the biblical teaching on how a man or how a woman is to live the Christian life, end quote. And what we have here is a summary of the Christian life. And that's an important matter, right? Like, I mean, second to salvation, what's more important? Other than coming to Christ, it's imperative um, that we, our children, our church, Christians throughout the world, know how to live lives according to Christ, according to godliness, according to holiness. Why? Because that is exactly what Jesus Christ purchased on the cross for you, for me. And without a doubt, there's much confusion as to how that is to be carried out today. How do we live the Christian life? How are, to we, how are we to proceed in what we might refer to as our sanctification? 
And how are we to run the race? Does God instruct us? Does God tell us? Then why today is there so much confusion as to that reality? Um, some would lean extremely passive and say, you just need to let God, let go and let God. You need to rely and relax. We are to sit around and somewhat emotionally work up or wait for a charismatic expression of the Spirit and His revelation coming upon us. And then there are those who find themselves in the opposite extreme, who are dutiful, obligatory, and even to the point of legalistic. Some are arguing for the Spirit, and some are arguing for works. Which is it? We're either right, I would argue that Paul is going to argue um, that there is a balance between both, that it is we who work and labor, yet at the same time it is God who works in us and utilizes our labor for the glory of the kingdom. Without the energizing work of the Spirit of God, all of our labors are in vain. Yet at the same time, we are to labor, and we are to run, and we are to fight. And that's exactly what we'll see here in this portion of Scripture. Thus, Paul clarifies here for us that truth. And I want to give you three things today. Number one, the chief command in this portion of Scripture. The chief command in this portion of Scripture, which is to work out your own salvation. It is to work out your own salvation. Number two, the conditions necessary to obey that command. Paul lays out certain conditions that modify that command. So we may say, what is the command? Number one, work out your own salvation, Paul then is going to instruct us in how to work out that command. And then finally, and I'm afraid we may not get too deep into this one today, but we'll pick it back up next week. But I do want to at least mention it today because it is so glorious. But number three, the comfort applied to that command. The comfort applied to that command. And you see that in verse number 13. So number one, the chief command, and not the greatest commandment, we know what that is, but what is the central command, the chief command in Paul's portion, in this portion of Paul's um, text, verses 12 and 13 center around one particular command, and what is that command, what is the essence of these verses, and it's found in that phrase, work out your own salvation. That's the command, the imperative in these verses. Everything else is explaining this command, outlining its characteristics, shaping it in our minds. But the essential command is, quote, work out your own salvation. In other words, in light of the clearest articulation of Christ's work, from humility to exaltation, or verses 5 to 11, that supreme example, in light of that, the clearest articulation, I would argue, that we have in Scripture, in summary form, that wonderful hymn of praise. Paul says, if that's the case, then what should we do? If that's reality, then where should we go? You should work out your own salvation. You should work it out with fear and with trembling. To work out is a single word in the original. The word itself carries with it the idea of effort. It's where our word energy comes from. It speaks of taking pains to achieve something. 
It's not speaking of the general use of energy, but literally could be defined as, quote, to achieve, to accomplish, or to produce something by means of work. It has something in mind. It has direction. It has a goal. It has a purpose. It's not expending energy um, in a general sense, like at home, growing my beard or um, digesting food. I'm expending energy, but, but it's not directed. It's the, the use of hands. It's the use of feet. It's, the, it's, it's directed with a purpose. It's intentional. Um, Paul is calling here for intentional, purposeful working out of that which was accomplished on your behalf. That's a life worthy of the gospel. You'll remember that, that the thesis statement in some sense could be for the church at Philippi, uh, chapter 1 and verse number 27, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That Christ has purchased something on our behalf for His pleasure and He is to receive that. So when He gives you salvation, there is an expectation to be lived out. What is that? It is for you to work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. Their salvation. Not salvation in the sense of justification. Salvation is already theirs. The idea is that they are to work out the salvation that they have been given and purchased on their behalf. We're not saying this morning that you are to work for your justification. You are not to work for your salvation. That salvation is wholly given completely by the grace of God. Jesus Christ purchased it. But you now, in accord with that, by the power of the Spirit, are to be actively pursuing a life that pleases God. You are to be actively pursuing a life that pleases God. Paul tells them, in some sense, it is incumbent that you take upon the task. This task. Paul tells them, it's going to take effort, it's going to be work. Welcome to the Christian life. The verb here is present, it's active, and it's imperative. And this means that it is a command. It is something required of them now, and not only now, but from now on. And it is something that they are to pursue with enduring energy and enduring discipline. It's something that when they wake up in the morning, they're to have on their calendars to accomplish for the day. And if they have nothing else, they have this on their to-do list. To work out my salvation. It's to fight the fight of faith that Paul describes in 1 Timothy 6. It's to press on towards the prize as Paul describes in Philippians chapter number 3. It's to lay aside every burden and run the race before. As the author of Hebrew tells us in uh, chapter number 12 and verse number 1. It's to pursue holiness without um, Hebrews 12.14 says, No one will see the Lord. It is an active pursuit of the salvation that God has given us, we are to work it out. Paul was not a pacifist. He did not advocate for those faithful believers to simply let go and let God and to wait upon some mystical outpouring to be filled with the Spirit. He says, go. He says, do. He says, live. He says, humble yourselves. Make no mistake. We are not to be passive in our sanctification. We are to make diligent use of every means that God has given us to grow in Him. We are to be pursuing God. We are, be, we are to be actively seeking to please Him. And God utilizes those things to make us more like His self as He energizes the work by the very Spirit of God. Another simple way that we could translate or 
translate this into our thinking. Not literally translate it, but to transfer it in such a way that would help us to understand what Paul is getting at here in this word and concept would be the simple word and concept, obedience. Obedience. It may be rightly said, to work out one's salvation is simply to obey the Lord. Let's not, let's not make it harder than it is, or should be, or harder than it seems. It's not complicated. It may be hard, but it's very simple. That it is our goal to simply obey the Lord. That's what Paul says. There, there is a link here in verse number 12 with the illustration. The therefore, again, remember the therefore is there to, to bring cause and effect. Because of this, you could actually say, my beloved, if this is the case, because this is true, my beloved, those whom I love, then do this. What does he say? He says, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. In some sense, he says, you've been working out your own salvation, now work it, continue to work it out. Um, he doesn't correct them for not doing that, but he actually says, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, continue to obey, you could almost say. That that's the relationship. And that's actually a parallel to Christ. You remember in verse number 8 of chapter 2? What, is it, what does it say? It says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him. The same word is found here in verse number 12. Therefore, if that's the case, just as Christ obeyed, then you too must obey, not only in my presence, but even in my absence. Paul is saying, just as Christ responded to the Father in obedience, you too, we too, Philippi, are to follow in that same example and respond to Christ in perfect obedience insofar as we can by the power of the Spirit. Again, not to save ourselves, but because we have been saved. By the grace of God, we express our obedience to our Lord in humility and joy and in service. He remind, reminds us that we are all to come to Him. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What does He say? He says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And when you yoke up with Christ, His commandments are not grievous. He walks with you and He works in you. And the load that you have to bear is not too great. Why? Because He bears it with you. If you come under Him, you obey Him. He walks with you. And there are blessings forevermore. And particularly those blessings are in Christ. So, to work out one's salvation is to pursue Christ in humble obedience. It's as simple as that. To work out one's salvation is to pursue Christ in humble obedience. The word obey is simply, to me, it's, it's a compound word in the original. It, it, it simply means, it literally means to hear under. Two words, to hear and to come under. It simply means to receive what you're taught. It means you receive the word, you listen to the word, you hear the word, and you come under its authority or the authority of Christ. It is a word that is characterized by submission. It's a humble spirit. It is a submissive spirit. When God speaks, you listen. And the listening takes form in obedience. And you yoke up with 
the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And you fulfill the task that God has given you. And I would like to just, for a moment, ask you to think on that. On obedience. Maybe we should ask, you know, Paul, what do you mean by obedience? Maybe we should ask you, what do you think of when you think of obedience? What do you think of when you hear the word obey? Let me ask you this, what stands behind every commandment of God? You know, many people will approach obedience as somewhat of a limiting um, concept, somewhat of a restricting of my Christianity, somewhat of a, a tightening in and a taking away of what I would take pleasure in. So it, I can remember one of the first encounters I had as an, uh, in an evangelistic encounter with a young man immediately as the gospel was given. Um, you know, you're, you're somewhat waiting for a response from him. And the first question is, is that if I come to Christ, do I have to give up this thing and that thing? You know, it's, it's um, obedience to Christ or submission to the will of God or, or becoming a Christian is often seen as somewhat limiting. But, but in all reality, obedience that is presented to us in the, for the Christian, the Christian life, as we are in Christ, is not death, it is life. That's what stands behind every commandment of God. It is the salvation of your soul. Again, not in the sense of salvation, of justification, but salvation as in the sense of progress, sanctification. What we need to understand is that when God saved us, He doesn't simply save us in a vacuum, declaring us righteous and then leaving you alone. But in salvation, He gives to you all the means to carry you to persevere to the end, particularly the Spirit of God. And that Spirit aids and helps and keeps you as it illuminates your mind according to the Word of God, the commands of God, and you yield to them. And God gives you victory over sin and growth in Christ. The very Word of God is eternal life. That's what the Scriptures are clear. First Timothy six seventeen and 19. And Paul is commanding those who are rich um, uh, for Timothy to instruct them. First Timothy six seventeen. Command those who are rich. In this present age, not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Not that those things will purchase eternal life. But in some sense, those things are life to us. That when God speaks His Word, and that becomes a part of our life, it is life-giving um, to the soul. So, He instructs them that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Put your treasure up in heaven. Pursue the will of God. That is life. That God is commanding, in some sense, the best that is for your soul. What is best for your life. That when you obey, you come under the authority of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Christ who sacrificed for your soul. And when He asks you to obey like a father to a son in His ignorance and His immaturity, is not doing it to restrict anything in His life or to take away, but to give that young man wisdom that he may flourish in life. But we need to see the obedience that we are to submit to, not as restrictive, but as freedom in Christ. Freedom now to actually live. Not constricting of our pleasure. 
but to take pleasure and delight in those things which are truly God's. When God says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, He is not saying, I'm, I'm seeking to limit your life, to restrict your pleasure, but refocus and delight in those things which are truly life. And that, come, and that you find that supreme example in Christ Jesus Himself. You're to be conformed to that very image. We are predestined, Romans 8, 28 and 29, to that. To be, to be conformed to the very image of Christ. And who is the utmost um, example of joy and delight other than Jesus Christ? So he's not seeking to take away joy. He's not seeking to remove happiness. But true blessing is found in, in submissive, willful, joyful obedience. As your mind is transformed. And you begin to see things as God sees them. That to work out your own salvation is a command to, to life. To live according to God's Word. And to truly experience what it is to be saved by the grace of God. Number two, the conditions necessary to obey that command. In other words, not only do we want to know what the essence of Paul's command is, but it would help to know what it looks like as well. You know, it's kind of like uh, boys and girls, your mom says, go clean your room or go out and clean the yard. Like the, the essence of it we understand. Uh, but... but but is there further clarification exactly how we're to do it? Does it matter how we obey? Does it matter what our temperament is? Does it matter, you know, uh, are there any extras that we can gather together to inform us, to, to add color to this black and white picture? And Paul does give us that, not only here, but all throughout his letters. So does Paul give us any information to further clarify what he means? And he does. So number one, I want to give you just a, a, a few things that are... And we could kind of highlight all of them like this. Obedience to this command will be characterized by this. Obedience to this command will be characterized by number one. Revelation will inform our obedience. Revelation will inform our obedience. So you see in verse 12 in the first portion, therefore. Therefore. As I mentioned earlier, I'll just reread that quote. God's therefore is matched by the Christian's therefore. And that, in a nutshell, is what this passage is about, the writer says, the commentator. He goes on to say, just as God assessed and then reacted to the worth of His Son's life of obedience, so the Christian must ponder the example of Christ and determine a worthy response. When speaking of the obedience rendered here, it is clearly given to us in this letter. This is not a text to be ripped out of context and applied to however we desire. Paul is calling these people to the example of Christ here. Working out our own salvation is defined by, one, the example of Christ in this text, and number two, the instruction that precedes it. In other words, boys and girls, working out our own salvation and obeying God is defined in the Bible. It is defined by the life of Christ. Romans 8 tells us that we were saved and being sanctified to be conformed to the very image of Christ. It has been predetermined that the way that we work out our salvation is to live out according to the will of God as contained within the Scriptures. That they are to give themselves particularly in this passage that working out their salvation in this passage is actually the cultivation of the graces, attitudes, and characteristics described previously. 
Um, if we set our minds and hearts to live and let our lifestyle worthy of the gospel with respect to our brethren, what we're doing with respect to the world, it's going to look like this. We're going to humble ourselves. Working out your salvation, according to Paul, to Philippi, is this humbling yourself. As Christ did. Seeking unity within the body. Standing in opposition to the world. We don't have the right to come and to take this out of the, the Scripture and work out our own salvation according to our feelings. According to our own attitudes. In accordance to our own obligations. We don't have the right to, to put upon this text anything external that we desire. God informs our obedience. We, come, we hear under. We must come under the hearing of God's Word and obey it. And that's what the therefore is there for. The therefore that causes us to work it out. If that's the case, then, then work it out with fear and trembling. In what way? In this way. Thus Christ is our ultimate pattern. Number two, a present relationship. Obedience to this command will be characterized by present relationship. What I mean by that is, 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 a, is a, a look at this word beloved. He says, therefore, my beloved. My beloved. What you see in Paul's life is a present relationship with Christ and His church. I gather that from the words my beloved, which mean to those whom I love. Personally, I love those words. This phrase taps into the intimate connection that Paul has with these brothers and sisters in Christ. My beloved. A term that is never used of the unconverted, never used of his fellow creatures created in the image of God, or creatures created not in the image of God. It is a special word indicating a distinct love that the apostle had for the children of God. You see the same word in chapter 1, verse number 7. You see the same word in 4 and 1, where Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord. And then he says it again, Beloved, or to those whom I love. Paul was truly knit together with these men and these women and had a heart for them. And thus this instruction comes out of that. I know that the Word of God is the Word of God and a donkey could speak it and we should obey. But Paul's it's interesting that he doesn't do that. But God carries him along in the Spirit of God and utilizes that intimate relationship that Paul has with them to call them to faithfulness, to call them to obedience. Paul has built this relationship with them and he leverages that intimacy to the glory of God. He doesn't lord over them like an indifferent cold tyrant seeking self-exaltation, but poise, pulls on their affection for Him and uses His love for them as a father to a child as, as a motivation to serve the Lord. Thus, He addresses them in this warm tone. Why? To manipulate them? No, because Paul truly loves them. Paul truly loves them. It's interesting. Many see that the call to obedience is unloving and overbearing. Paul's motivation for obedience, for instruction, for command, for exhortation was out of the love that he had for these people. He wanted them to abound in the Lord. He wanted their joy to be at its fullest. He wanted the blessing of God upon their lives. Thus, he calls to them to obedience in the Lord. To obedience in the Lord. He does it in a similar way in other places. 
Colossians 3.12, Therefore is the elect of God, the chosen of God, the holy and the beloved. Put on. Work out. Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility. goes on to say, even as Christ forgave you, so also you must do. But above all things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. It is through this relationship that He has, he has built this beloved, that those whom I love, and he, he calls on them to, as a result of His relationship to them and the relationship with Christ. Ultimately, they're, they're all in Christ. He's the head. There's the body. and they, they are the body. And He calls upon them for faithfulness out of love. Paul is not seeking to... To restrict them, um, again, he is. It is because of his love that he actually um, exhorts them as a father to a son, as a father, as a mother to a daughter, and and so forth and so on. Paul has them tenderly in his heart, the utmost affection, as we read in Philippians chapter number one, in the deepest recesses in his his viscera. He says, "My affection is for you," and he looks at them and he and he exhorts them as, as, as his own children walking possibly to destruction and he's calling them back. Or he's calling them to faithfulness. You know, faithful people need to be instructed as well. And so oftentimes it's very easy to get also just, just offended when anyone comes with instruction. You know, as if it's a, an exhortation, a warning, or a, a, a slight against them. You know, Paul often instructs the faithful. The faithful need instruction. He's not saying you were disobedient. He actually says the very opposite. You weren't. But you need more. More exhortation. The faithful need instruction. And it is not a slight. It is not. Uh, warnings come because it is an expression of love. It's not that we hate and want to restrict you, but we want you to have a life and have it more abundantly. Thus we give the Word and we call out and we instruct and we, re- we correct and we rebuke. Why? Because that is life. So it is out of the love that Paul has for these brethren, that those whom I love and can feel an affection for in my viscera, it pushes me to call you to faithfulness. It is the love of God in Paul shed abroad as they are in union with Christ that calls him to this type of instruction. This type of instruction. Your sanctification is grounded in a present relationship ultimately with Christ and subsequently with His church. Number three, it requires your obedience, your working out your salvation requires consistency or a consistent walk. Verse number 12, as you have always obeyed in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Your obedience, your working out of your salvation must be a continual diligent effort. It's not something that you can pick up on Monday and lay down on Tuesday and think you're going to take a vacation you know, through Friday. When Jesus Christ saves a soul, the Spirit of God comes and indwells, delivers that salvation, and He indwells Monday through Sunday. And, he is, and as He dwells in you, you are to be pursuing and working out. Um, Christianity is not a weekend career. It's not a Monday through Friday job. You don't leave it at the house when you go on vacation. It is something that you become because Christ purchased you to be that. 
And that's why Paul encourages them here. And we looked at that in chapter number 1. He says something um, very similar as he exhorts them to be continually, even in the absence of His presence, to continually be faithful. They may ask the question, Paul, how often am I to work out my salvation? Paul says, in essence, you do it all the time. At all times. Well, Paul, why don't you just say it like that? (laughs) Why why doesn't he just say, never stop working out your salvation? Or work out your salvation at all times. Again, because this is a real letter. Paul is driven to write it out of real affection and a burden for Philippi. As their spiritual father, he knows that they possibly have an inclination to labor more in his presence than in his absence. What's Paul after? There's a potential danger, maybe, to rely too much on him for their spiritual growth. To think that His presence among them was essential for their progress in grace. You know, we have that too, right? I mean, one of the elders or an elder or an apostle was with you throughout the week. Would your life be different? You know, if accountability was looking over you, I know that, you know, as a children, you know, (laughs) do you act differently? As you're cleaning your room or carrying out your chores or coming under the hearing and obedience of your mother and father, do you, do you work differently when they're there than when they're not? You should work the same all the time. In their presence or in their absence, their authority should carry such weight and you should love them so much that you carry it out to the best of your ability regardless of whether they're there. That's Paul's... Um, exhortation here. That's his warning. That's his desire. He knows that while he was there, they were truly effective. He knows that they worked and they labored diligently to the point where there's a commendation to them. But now he's saying that even in your absence, I want you to be consistent. I want you to live out your life in consistency. I don't want you to only be effective and driving toward eternity and imbibing the life of the Word and standing in opposition to the world, being unified when I'm here, um, loving one another while I'm in the midst of the congregation. When I go, I want to hear the same. I want to hear the same. He's saying your gospel-driven holiness cannot depend upon me being with you. As much as I glory in that and, 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 and respect the love that you have for me. That cannot be the foundation upon which the gospel is driven, not my presence with you. You know, if the salvation, if your salvation and working it out is dependent upon my presence with you, then I've saved you, not Christ. But if Christ has saved you, and you know that He is present among you, then you'll live it out anywhere and everywhere. That a life worthy of the gospel isn't to be lived in the fear of the Apostle Paul. It is to be lived in the fear of God. And what I want for you is to live and to work it out. And this is what he means by it. If I come or if I don't, I want to hear of your obedience. I want to hear that you came under the submission of God. I want to hear of a consistent life in Christ. That to work out your salvation is to work it out progressively, consistently, diligently, purposefully, intentionally, with energy, with effort, with goal in mind. Would it be different, Paul may be asking, is it different now that I'm gone? Are you more laxed in the congregation? Are you allowing more things to come in? You know, 
Are you allowing false teaching to arise? Are your numbers growing because you've become lax? Is, your, is there divide, division coming? You know, I, the, the, my, my children, they, you know, it, it's amazing. Like as soon as you walk in, there's, a, there's division going on. As soon as you walk in, man, they just, boom, they're all together. <laughs> because they know dad's there. They know what they're doing is, is incorrect and wrong. They know how to react to one another. But while I'm not there or mama's not there, they're there. But as soon as my presence comes through the door, you know, Paul is saying, if I was, if I was to come in in the congregation on a Lord's Day morning, you know, would you, would this Sunday reflect the last Sunday or would it immediately change because you know what you're doing is wrong? If so, you're living in the fear of an apostle, not in the fear of God. You're living in the fear of an apostle, not in the fear of God. The believer's supreme example is to come not from Paul, although Paul is an example to them, but he's only an example insofar as he follows Christ. And they live, thus as they follow his example, they follow Christ and live in the power, not of the apostle, but in the power of Christ insofar as he reflects it to them. And one, you may be asking, how does one do that? How does one live a consistent life? How does one work out their salvation with, with, uh, with such progressive consistency, energy? They do it in the fear of God. Number four, with godly character. Paul, how are we to live this out? You're to do it with godly character. Paul's not calling for obligatory, dutiful um, type of, of obedience. Paul is saying that there is a certain type of attitude and character that is to govern the working out of your salvation. Verse number 12 at the end of the portion. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He goes on to say in verse number 14, do all things without complaining and disputing. Now Paul is very interested. God is very interested not only in what you do, but in the manner in which you do it. And in all reality, if you don't do it in the proper manner, the proper character, the godly attitudes that He prescribed that are uniquely Christ, that He gives to His people, you will never please Him. You'll never honor Him. You'll never be diligent. You'll never work out your salvation. Um, unless you work it out with fear and with trembling. If you're going to work out your own salvation, Paul is clear that it's going to take a certain type of work. Boys and girls, it matters how you obey your parents. In a similar way, it matters how you obey God and how you work out your own salvation. How? With fear and with trembling. It reflects a character, an attitude that governs and should govern every aspect of our Christian walk. It is in some sense the foundation that motivates us forth, but with it we carry it as we engage in God's work for our lives. The same type of, um, of, of reference to this, fear and trembling, are found in 1 Corinthians 2.3. If you'd like to look at those later, 2 Corinthians 7.15 and Ephesians 6.5. This is not only... Uh, the only place it's found, but Paul often encourages and exhorts the people of God to do what they do in the fear of God and in the trembling of His presence. Now, what do we not mean as we speak of the fear of God? We do not mean fear in the sense of a, a criminal who's cringing in fear and who wonders 
when he'll be called. We're not speaking about a a slavish type of fear, which is waiting to be discerned by the Lord or the Master, in which at some point he will be punished for his disobedience. If that were true, there would be no consistency with the later command. Paul is going to say rejoice. Whatever this fear is, it's not inconsistent with a life of joy. Right? So, so you can live out a life, in, a, you can work out your salvation with fear and trembling, yet at the same time have the joy of Christ. That's the idea. You can rejoice. You can overflow with the blessing of God such that um, fear and trembling and joy. I think it's Psalm chapter number 2 that says rejoice and tremble. That this character of God, both of these which rest in the very essence and nature of God, um, and, and, are, and are distributed to you and to me, um, can live, co- can coexist. There's a coexist sticker for you. Rejoice and tremble. You know? Um, it's true. You can do it. It's possible. And Jesus Christ actually accomplished that for you. It's not a fear of uncertainty. Perhaps as, you know, as, as we work out our salvation, we're, we're not running the risk of losing it. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't say in the previous chapter 1 and 6, you know, He which has begun a good work in me will complete it till the day of Christ. It doesn't remove our confidence. We're not running in fear of uncertainty that one day we'll lose it. And he's a, he's a, a harsh taskmaster um, who's going to take away um, that which He has given us. No, this, this, this fear and trembling can, does and can coexist with the blessing of God and even the joy of God such that it could culminate in rejoicing to the highest of heavens and make a public declaration of the glory and the grace of Christ, yet at the same time, fear and tremble. What is it then? It is a fear growing out. This is a commentator. I'm not smart enough for most of this. It is a fear growing out of the awareness of the tremendous issues in hand and a consciousness that in my flesh dwells nothing. Such things, such great issues are at stake. The glory of Christ, the honor of the Savior. And there is this fear and trembling in some sense of failing to fulfill the working out of my salvation and the displeasure of God. It is a fear of dishonoring Christ. It is a fear, a true fear, to be in His presence and to see something so magnificent, glorious, and holy. Something holy other than us. It is, in a similar way, a reverence, a respect, a fear of letting down um, a father, an authority figure over. You know, hopefully my children will respect, as, I, as we respect authority. But they'll never, they'll never fear in the way that they know, that, that or they believe that... As a result of their disobedience, I will cease to be their father. There will always be a child, yet at the same time there will be this reverence and respect, um, hopefully that is, is earned through faithfulness to them, that is inherent in them and in me, that there is this desire to honor their father and their mother, and with that is the first, prom- uh, the, the first commandment with promise, that blessing will come with them. And they don't do it for the blessing, they do it because of the type of man and the type of person that they are. There's this reverence and this respect, this fear, this trembling. Um, one commentator says, our work is to be sensitive. And these, again, same way, that, that our work is to be characterized by sensitivity. The fear and trembling, he says. He goes on to say, is this a sensitive awareness of the preciousness of the salvation given to us? 
resulting in a trembling concern, lest we fail to live up to our privileges and enjoy the riches, richness of divine benefits? Is it a sensitivity towards other members of the Christian fellowship, towards whom and for whose welfare we are to work out those virtues of, un, of, of unself-regarding service which mark the life of ministry of Jesus? Or is it a sensitivity towards God? For although the terrors of the law, he's quoting something else, with me can have nothing to do. There is a fear of God of which we know all too little and which we lose at our peril. A godly fear, he says. Growing out of a recognition of weakness and a power of temptation. A filial dread of offending God. A filial, or a family, a familial, a filial dread of offending God. This is not a fear of a lost sinner before a holy one, before the holy one, but the fear of a true child before the most loving of all fathers. Not a fear of what he might do to us, but of the hurt we might do to him. This last area of sensitivity says is the deepest and would secure the values of the other two. For there is no failure in the lives of those to whom the Lord has given his full salvation, which does not pierce directly to the throne of heaven. There is not one failure in the lives of those to whom the Lord has given His full salvation, which is not pierced directly to the throne of heaven. Another writer says, Not slavish terror, but wholesome, serious caution. This fear is self-distrust. It's a tenderness of conscience. It's a vigilance against temptation. It is the fear which inspiration opposes to high-mindedness in the admonition, Be not high-minded, but fear. It is taking heed lest we fall. It is constant apprehension of the deceitfulness of the heart and of the insidiousness of the power of inward corruption. It is the caution of circumspection which timidly shrinks from whatever should offend and dishonor God and the Savior. And these the child of God will feel and exercise the more he rises above the enfeebling, disheartening, distressing influence of the fear which hath torment. Well might Solomon say of such fear, happy is the man that feareth always. That this fear and trembling is a mingling of godly fear which is concerned with pleasing our Savior and grows out of a wholesome distrust of ourselves because of remaining sin and the weakness of the flesh. It is not a fear in the sense of I'm going to lose my salvation because it is a total gift of God, but it is knowing Christ, knowing the Father, knowing the Spirit in such a way, being in His presence means so in union with Him that there's this fear and trembling, this godly fear which is concerned with pleasing our Savior in all aspects and in all respects of life. That to walk out your salvation with fear and trimming, to work it out properly with diligence, energy, and intention, is it requires a proper sense of who God is. It requires a proper sense of who God is. You cannot live out the Christian life without fear of the Lord. Cannot live inside the will of God without an accountability of God. The fear of the Lord. You know, accountability is necessary. But at the same time, Paul's accountability was a good thing. And accountability among men is a, is a wonderful thing. But listen, there is not enough men in this world to keep you accountable if you don't fear God. And accountability groups generally only become effective as they submit to one another because they fear the Lord. 
It is the gravity and the weight concerning their lives and their own self, wholesome self-distrust and the weakness of their own flesh and, and their desire to please and to honor God in such a way to work out their own salvation that they put themselves under the authority of other men because they don't want to offend God. That all the men in all the world could lock you up in a box and tie your hands from every sin and your heart would still run wild. At the root of true, all true obedience and any true accountability with one another must be born out of a true fear and trembling of God. A genuine satisfaction in a deep sense of an awareness of a holy God. We are to live in light of that divine reality. It is more than just an assent to the existence of God. But a true and holy sense of the true and holy God of the Bible. If we have a sense of the presence of God, we will have a sense of the weightiness of what this life is, of the value of a soul, and what everything is truly about. If He's real, and what He says is true, then life matters. Eternity matters. What we do here affects what happens there. We're to lay up eternal treasures even now. Obedience matters. As we work out our salvation, there must be a true sense of fear and trembling. Learned a new word this week. Levity. Listening to a preacher, he said, have you ever noticed that almost everything in this world argues for levity? Had to Google it. <laughs> Not the brightest. Had the greatest vocabulary. But I know where to I have resources. <laughs> Levity is humor or frivolity. Especially the treatment of a serious matter with humor or in a manner in a manner lacking due respect. He said, Have you ever noticed that almost everything in our world argues for this? For humor, frivolity, or taking serious matters and just joking about them and pushing them off. And I think he's right. The world's filled with distractions. The world's geared to, do, to direct our attentions away from profound things. When things of value do come up, um, we're often taught to deal with them humorously, to make light of them, or to totally cast them off in apathy or indifference. You know, Nobody wants to talk about profound things, things that matter, grave things. It's a coping mechanism to protect us um, on the inside so that we don't have to deal with the weightier things of life. Thus, we fill our lives with distractions, and in so doing so, we just honor the grave, the grave things. As a result, the world is consumed with entertainment and things that don't really matter. We're entertainment driven. Entertain me. Distract me. Make me laugh. Make things light. Don't get too serious. You know what's sad? That this reality has made its way right into the church of God so that we no longer um, uphold the weighty things. No longer preach the Word of God as it is weighty. Now church is to be funny, it's to be entertaining. You know, men or women are entertained to the grave. We don't talk about grave things. You know, our evangelists are nothing more than salesmen who come to our doors and sell us a product with the least amount of information possible. Why? Because if you know the reality of it all, you wouldn't buy it. 
Thus the gospel is presented with as little as much as as little of Christ as possible. Why? So that you'll, 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 you'll see the benefits of it and run to it. Instead of giving you the entire picture, preaching of the weighty things, of life and death, eternity, heaven and hell, of who God is. Who is God? Most of the world has no idea. They look at the Old Testament and the New Testament and they serve two different gods. A mean tyrant of the Old Testament and Jesus Christ of the New. Gracious, humble, and kind. Who would turn no one away. Forgetting that they are unified in one. And that in Revelation it is clear that there is coming a day when a sword will come out of his mouth and, it will, and he will punish the nations for their utter rebellion. And what we have lost not only in our in churches, but also in our lives, is a proper sense of who God is. Thus that when we would gather together, we would leave changed. Why? Because we met with the Lord. Because God spoke. I mean, in all reality. And you know, when was the last time that you truly felt a sense of a nearness of Christ that, that, that moved you to holiness? Let's be honest with ourselves. You know what we'll say? We'll, we'll, I was listening to another faithful man this week. You know, who said that there are different types of the presence of God. And I think he's right. You know? Sometimes we can just kind of um, soothe the pain of a distance from God by saying, God is always present. And that's true, as in God is omnipresent. He is everywhere all the time. There is no doubt about that. So in some sense, God is with us this morning. In, a, in an essential sense, there is nowhere in the... He's in the heavens and in the earth. There is nowhere in which God is not. But, that, but, but at the same time, the atheist could say that this morning, in his living room, and it does nothing for him. You know, it pushes him not to holiness. It does not bring upon him the fear of eternity. Yes, God is there. But throughout the Scriptures, what you see throughout Old Testament and New um, is this sense in which the manifest presence of God drives a people to holiness. Listen, I'm not a charismatic and I'm not a mystic. But at the same time, I recognize all throughout the Old Testament, as well as the New, that, that when God is present, God people know and they are forever changed. Even this morning, you know, as we sat in Sunday school reading of Ezra, there was a statement that was made that, 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 that the king granted him all his requests. Why? Because according to the hand of the Lord, his God was upon him. God was with him. You read about Joseph's life. What do you read? That, that, that it didn't matter where he, go, he went. God was with him. You think that, that Joseph was, was, was thinking about the omnipotence or the omnipresence of God, how God is always... No, God was manifestly present in such a way that he, that he served with fear and trembling and it changed him, it provoked him to holiness. And at the same time, what you also see is that God withstands those who are not. You know, Isaiah chapter number 63 is one example of many. Samson in... Judges chapter number 16 and verse 20, I think it is. That as he compromised 
in his holiness unto the Lord. And he rebelled against God. He's going out to battle against the Philistines. You know what it says? It says the Spirit of the, the Lord was not with him and he did not know it. Isaiah 63 speaks of all the blessings that was laid upon Israel. You know what God says in verse number 10? Um, they rebelled against me and I became their enemy. Listen, God in some sense is with Everyone in an omnipresent type of sense. But, but at the same time, this morning, is He with you? Or are you His enemy? It literally says that. That God's people, who were His people, poured out upon blessing. Blessing upon blessing. Isaiah chapter 63 and verse number 10. But they rebelled, again, they rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit. So He turned Himself against them as an enemy. And He fought. Against them. You say that's God of the Old Testament. Well, what about God of the New? He's walking among the candlesticks. Yes. But at the same time. Did he not leave them? When sin became so overwhelming. Um, in the congregation. And repentance was not nigh. Christ was far from them. Such that their light would go out. And he totally abandoned them. And in the same vein as Samson. They could say. In some sense. They have a, God could say. They have a name which is alive. But they're dead. They think God is with them, but He's not. You know? They, 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 they think they're walking with the Lord, but He has turned Himself against them and He is fighting against them. He has removed their lamp. And unless they repent and turn, He is not with them. There must be within the people of God to work out our own salvation. We must be prompted and provoked to holiness. How? By a, a true sense of who God is and His presence among us. Is God here? Say so yes in some sense. Yes, but is He in a different sense than He is with the atheists this morning? Is He driving you to the holiness? Is there a nearness to Christ? Does He comfort your soul in the discouraging times? Does He strengthen your soul as you stand in opposition against? Is He with you? Can you say as He was with Joseph in all of the, all of the trials and tribulations of this life, can you say with Joseph, God was with me this morning? Did He work through a miscarriage? You know, as you work against opposition in a job, as you're evangelizing the lost, as you're going through trials and tribulations, it's, it's one thing to say, yes, God is in the heavens and He's on the earth. And it's another thing to say, and God carried me through that. I don't know how I would have made it unless God was with me. Christ was so palpable in presence in His Word that, 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 that the psalmist was like, that God was speaking this morning as I went to His Word. That sounds mystical and that sounds charismatic. No, no, no. That's, that's what God does for His children. There is a nearness of God. I can't explain it. It's not a visible manifestation. It's not a vocal, auditory type of speaking. But there are these means that God has given us by faith that He is truly there. And we as Baptists, we're the worst for this. To live apart from God. Afraid of the charismatic movement. Afraid of mysticism and all of this. And I'm not arguing for that. But at the same time, I'm arguing for Scripture. Is God with us this morning? You know? The Lord's table has become nothing more than a memorial. It'll be nothing more than bread and juice this morning. Unless you take it by faith. You know what, the, you know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians? That, 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 that there is something as you partake it by faith. God is with you. 
that you share with Him and with one another and you're strengthened by faith. Thus, communion has become somewhat of this, this take it or leave it type of ordinance for most Baptists. You know, we can do it once a year or once a decade. But, but, the, but the essence of it is communing with one another and communing with Christ in such a way that He strengthens your faith. It is a picture of feeding on Christ. His blood, His death, His burial, and His resurrection. Let me ask you this, how often do you need to feed on Christ? By faith. Every day, when you wake up and when you lie down. And yes, He's not in the bread and the cup in the same way that, that, that a Catholic would. We're not arguing for transubstantiation, but we are arguing in some sense as you believe and partake of it, Christ manifests Himself to strengthen your faith. God is with us this morning. Is He? Is He here? Is, is, is there a true fear and trembling? As you leave this place, and we cast it off in frivolity, you know, will you argue for levity? You know, will you teach your children that, 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 that it's, it's just more just a memorial? Will you let them know the sober things of life that God was there this morning and you must repent and you must believe? You know, do we have a proper understanding of the sense of God? Because when we do, things will matter. It'll matter when you leave here. It'll matter how you work. It'll matter how you labor. It'll matter how you work out your salvation. It'll matter. Life matters. Everything. When you have a proper sense of God and His presence among us, everything matters. To the littlest and even to the greatest. Is there a, when you have a proper sense of God, you have a proper sense of responsibility. You see that your salvation must be worked out. You see that, that He says, work out your own salvation, that there's a responsibility I'm to run the race. I'm to seek after God. I'm to obey Him in all things. You know? And may I never grieve the Spirit in such a way and that it would cause Him to turn Himself from me and make Himself an enemy in some way. That that is the attitude and condition of all working out of our salvation. Number three, quickly, and we'll get into more of this next week, but I want to comfort you this morning as well. At the end of it, you're maybe thinking, who can do that? Who's fit for this? And I'm with you, you know. It's easy to end at number two and to say, to read the Scriptures front to back and to read even just Paul's epistle and say, who can do that? And the reality is none of you. None of you in such a way that would honor God outside of Christ. But that in Christ, you could not only... <laughs> Strive after it, but you can do it. Verse number 13, for Why? Because it is God who works in you. Both to will and to do for His good pleasure. The comfort applied this morning is that it is possible. Why? Because Christ died to purchase it. And it is God by His Spirit that is working in you to accomplish that end. That as you labor, you need to understand that God is at work. That's why you need to know that He's there. You need to be like the nation of Israel and Moses who says God to the Father as He, as he, as he, as he, as he strives for it to see His glory. He says, Father, if you don't go up, I won't go. You know, if you don't do this, you need as a family and us as a church to say, we're not going to make this decision unless we know God is with us. First and foremost, externally, that would just be in a clear obedience to His command. Yet at the same time, operating by faith and by the power of the Spirit, knowing that God must go with us. Because if He doesn't, then we shouldn't go. 
See, how can we do this? It is God working in us. Not only on the inside, but the out to will, but also to do. To work in our desires, but also to work in our hands. God is the one working to change us. He said, I don't fear and tremble this morning. Then God is, should be at work in you. How to will to change those affections. Why? So that you would work out your salvation. Why? For His pleasure and His good delight. And we'll look at more of that in the weeks to come. Simply to say, therefore, my beloved, I love you with a love that only God could give. And to say, if this is what Christ accomplished, then you must be diligently pursuing with all your effort to please Him in all things. You say, how can a man do that? He can't. But in Christ he can. Because God is in you, working to will and to do of His good pleasure. Let frivolity fly out the window. May we, have, may we recover a true sense of God, not only in my presence. I don't want to, you know, to just be solemn as I preach. I want to be solemn before my children. I want to be solemn in my career. I want to be solid as I sit back here in the church when no one is watching. I want to know that, 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 that God sees. And that I carry it well. And I'm faithful unto the end. That I run the race. And that's the call of all of us men. That's the call of all of us women. That's the call of all of us children. If Christ did that, then beloved, I don't do it to restrain you. I do it. I, I tell you because I love you. And I want the life of God to abound in all of us. So let us pursue God. And work out our own salvation. How with fear and trembling, but with joy. Rejoice and tremble, Psalm chapter 2. At the same time, knowing that it is possible. That we have a high view of Christ. Such that we pursue Him in all things. Trusting that He will work in us and He will make those efforts eternally influential. Why? Because His name is on the line and He will not suffer it to lie in the dust. He will exalt it in His people. He will accomplish the work. So run after it, church. Let us exalt Christ in all things. And let us do it with fear and trembling, trusting that God will do the work. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the glory of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the apostle, who he is, and all that you used and accomplished him for, Father. Don't want to be selfish, but at the same time, I'm thankful that you used him this morning, Father, to minister to us. And that you've used them over the past several months, Father, to transcend generations by the Spirit of God, Father, and speak the eternal word to us to make us more like your Son. Father, I need to be more like your Son. Father, I need His character. I need His nature. I need His fear. I need His trembling. I need His grace. I need His mercy. I need His long-suffering. I need His patience. Father, in my family life, in my individual life, in church life, and in community life, Father, may you take the word of God this morning to the deepest recesses of my soul. Father, would you help me to lay up treasure in heaven? Father, would you do an eternal work that only you can accomplish? Father, it's easy to just spout out some realities and to preach a decent sermon. It's another thing, Father, for the Spirit to work. So, Father, we confess that we can do nothing 
We trust you to take it and to do as you please. Father, we leave this in your hands because we cannot accomplish it in and of ourselves. So, Father, help us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. But let us remember that if we have Christ, then we have the Spirit, and we have the ability and opportunity to do all things, Father, um, according to your will and according to your pleasure. Father, change our hearts to delight in the things that you delight in. Help us not to see obedience as restricting, but free and liberty, Father. And help us to move forward, but help us, Father, not to move forward unless we know God be with us. Make yourself known. Manifest your presence in a mighty way. Help us, Father. Bring us near to Christ, Father, or bring us to the lowest depths to show us that need. Father, we need you. We need your Son, and we need your Spirit. Father, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you will, we'll stand and sing.